When Jesus tells us in John chapter 13 that we are to love one another, I'm not exactly sure that we know what he means by that. You see, when we think about loving one another and loving our church, very often we think about feelings. We think about excitement. So, so we might reprogram this to say, go and find a church that you're excited about, and as long as you remain excited, stay there, right? Is that, is that what he means? For some people, we think about loving our church strictly in terms of service. And so we might reword this in that context to say that go and do the work. Whatever needs to be done, do it. Work hard, even if you despise the work, even if you loathe the work, even if you feel contempt for your brother and sister who doesn't also do the work. And so we can go and we can flesh this out a hundred different ways, but I'm not sure that we fully understand what Jesus is intending to communicate to us when he calls us to love one another. And a big part of that is because love in our world has been polluted, hasn't it? Love in our world has been polluted. We have husbands and dads who think that love is simply providing and helping raise the standard of living for their family and making sure that they have everything that they need. We have moms who leave their husbands and leave their children's dad because they say that they have fallen out of love with him. We have college students who every time there's goosebumps on their arms, look to the person that they're talking to and say, I love you, right? We live in a world, we live in an age, we live in a time in which love has been polluted, and so I want us to ask the question this morning, in context of how we are to love one another, the love that is to be found among Christians in the church, what does Jesus mean? What is true love? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans may just be my very favorite book uh, in all of the Bible. They're all good, but I've spent a good deal of time here lately reading Romans, and probably if I spent a good deal of time reading another book, it'll change. But right now, Romans may just be my very favorite book. It has some of the richest, if not the richest, theology in all of the Bible. And then it shows us not just theology up in the sky, but how it looks in real life. And that's where we're at in chapter 12. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read Romans 12. Uh, beginning in verse 9, and we're going to go through verse 13. Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. God's inerrant and all-sufficient word says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. What's really neat, and one of the things that I want you to notice about our passage this morning is if you'll remember two weeks ago when we kicked off this series, we kicked it off from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter of the Bible. And what we said is that that chapter was not written specifically for married couples. It was not written specifically to even talk about the love that God has for his people. But it was written to describe the love that we are to have for one another within the church. And the way that we knew that was the context in which it was put. That 
Paul goes through this time and he's talking about the spiritual gifts in the church and how the spiritual gifts are there to build up the church and build up each other to the glory of God and to expand the kingdom. And then right after that, he says, I want to show you a more excellent way, love. Uh, And then he goes and talks about uh, the preeminence of love in the church. Well, what's really cool, and what if, as, as you grow as a student of the Bible, you'll begin to see these things more and more. But what we have this morning is essentially a mirror passage. And so we can know that Jesus here is, ta- or Paul here is talking about that commandment that Jesus gave us to love one another because it's virtually the same context. Just before our text in, Ma- in Romans chapter 12, he talks about the spiritual gifts again. He talks about the need for us to exercise the spiritual gifts in the life of the church and to bring our gifts and our experiences to the table for the good of our brother and for the advancement of the kingdom. And then what does he do? He transitions straight out of that and he says, now love is genuine. Love is genuine. So he's talking again about the relationships that we are to have in the life of the church with each other. Now, he says in, in, our, in the ESV, it translates that, that let love be genuine, but most of the other translations that I studied this week actually phrases it in the negative. And it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. And that's probably an easier way for us to understand exactly what Paul is getting at here. He's talking about not a shallow love, not a superficial love, not a puppy love, not a goosebump love, not a temporary love. He is talking about pure, true, gospel, permanent love. And so he says, when it comes to the love that you have for each other, when it comes to the love that you have for one another in the church and in the advancement of the kingdom, don't be hypocrites. Don't be hypocrites. The word that's translated there in in the ESV as genuine, and maybe your translation as being without hypocrisy, is literally the word hypocrite. And the word hypocrite means to be, it refers to an actor. It refers to someone in this day, in, in the Greek culture, that would wear a mask. And they would wear a mask so that they could become someone that they ordinarily weren't. So that they could appear as being someone other than who they actually are. And so the term began to be used in society to refer to those people that say one thing but live another. For those people that try to portray being humble but really aren't humble. Those people who try to fake joy but really aren't joyful. Those people that wear a mask uh, as a matter of speaking to be someone that they really aren't. And so Paul is saying in your relationships with one another and your love for each other and your purity with one another, take off the masks. Take off the mask and love one another sincerely. Love one another without, without uh, a facade. Love one another without being superficial and without being shallow. Actually, truly, really love each other with an unmasked, real, authentic, genuine love. Now, that's teaching us something about the nature of genuine love, isn't it? That's teaching us something about the nature of of true Christian gospel love. You see, genuine Christian love is inwardly transformative and outwardly expressed. It's inwardly transformative, it's outwardly expressed. In other words, if it's just something that's inward, it's just something that you feel, it's just something that you think, but it never does anything, it's not real love. It's shallow. 
On the other hand, if it's an outward love and you're serving and you're working and you're doing, but inwardly you're feeling contempt and inwardly you are feeling, uh, you're having feelings of, of despising your brother or despising your sister, if inwardly you're wishing you could be doing anything else in the whole world, then that is hypocritical. That itself is not genuine love. It's superficial love. That the love that Paul is calling us to, the love that Jesus was calling us to, is a love that has so inwardly transformed us that now it is seeking a way to be outwardly expressed to our brother or to our sister. It is looking for avenues of expression because we have passion for the gospel and passion for Christ and are so stunned by the forgiveness that we have received that now in joy and pleasure and delight as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as those who want the name of Jesus lifted high among every person that hears it, they want to bring about good into their brother's life, whatever that means. Good into their sister's life, however that looks. It's an unmasked, deep, rich, authentic love. Not the shallow, superficial stuff that we see so prevalent in the church today. And so what I think what we see in our text is from that point forward, after we have let love be genuine or let love be without hypocrisy, we kind of have that given to us as the thesis statement of the text. And everything else that is said thereafter is in support, even if we were to go all the way to verse 20, is in support of what real, genuine, gospel, Christian love is to look at. And so out looking through verse 13, talking about our relationships specifically with one another, if we were to go past that, it would talk a lot about our relationships with the unreached world, but we want to focus our time on that relationships with each other. And so I want us to see five marks of genuine gospel love. Five marks of genuine love as we were to go through this. Now, just laying this out there, every single verse could be its own sermon. All right, so we're going to be a bit surface level here. We're going to kind of come at this thing like the Goodyear blimp. All right, we're not going to be on the, the camera down on the field. We're going to be up in the, up in the sky looking down on this. So let's look at the first mark. The first mark is that genuine love is pure. Genuine love is pure. Look at the second part there of verse 9. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So in other words, in genuine love, in authentic love, there are two realities that are simultaneously true at any given time. That wherever there is real love, wherever there is gospel love, wherever there is God-centered love, these two realities are present. That on one hand, I am going to loathe, despise, hate, abhor that which is evil. And on the other side, I am going to love, hold fast to, enjoy, delight in, take pleasure in that which is good. Now, beneath the surface there, there's an important thing that we need to get away from this. And that is that if I, can, if I am to hate that which is evil and I am to love that which is good, then that means it is objective truth that is evil and objective truth that is, that is good. It is not the relative world that we live in today that your good is your good and my good is my good and your evil is your evil and, your, and my evil is my evil. 
There is an objective good and an objective evil, for I cannot love evil if I don't know what evil is. And I cannot, or I cannot love good if I don't know what good is. And I cannot hate evil if I don't know what evil is. No, behind the, behind the scenes here, beneath the surface here, is the understanding that there is a God that is in control of the entire universe, and he has set forth that which is good, and he has set forth that which is evil, that, it, that the human ethic... And and the human morality finds its anchor points in God and God alone. And since God is immutable and God is unchangeable, that which is evil is immutable and unchangeable, and that which is good is immutable and unchangeable. They are permanent realities in the world. And so the Christian is not to be indifferent toward that which is evil and indifferent toward that which is good. In fact, Paul uses some of the strongest words that he can possibly use. He, can, he isn't being emphatic. You must hate it. You must despise it. You must love it. You must be passionate about it. There is no room for apathy. There is no room for indifference. There is no room for nonchalance. There is no neutrality in love. <coughs> You'll have to forgive me today. I've developed a cough this weekend. <coughs> but there is no neutrality in love. That love reacts with will and love reacts with conviction. Sometimes it even means that we hate stuff. That love, according to Paul, actually necessitates hate. Now I want you to think about how different that is than our society. How do we define love in our society? We define love as tolerance, don't we? That as long as I'm willing to tolerate whatever is in your life, as long as I'm willing to tolerate whatever is in my neighbor's life, whatever, as long as I'm willing to tolerate all the things that I see, then I am a loving person. I am a kind person. But what we do is we, we confuse the difference between tolerant love and unconditional love, right? We confuse ourselves into believing that if I'm going to love someone unconditionally, then I must by necessity tolerate everything that they believe. But that is not at all what unconditional love is. Think about the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel, by definition, did not come to tolerate evil, but to obliterate evil, it came not to, not to make evil okay, but to overcome evil by great good from God at cost to God himself. It was because evil was intolerable and beyond the ability for God to just turn a blind eye to that Jesus and his cross had to come. Because evil must be destroyed, Jesus demands that from us in our relationships. That we must hold fast to that which is good and abhor that which is evil because by doing so at the very same time, we are holding fast to the gospel. We are holding fast to the cross. And it is, a, it is a, uh, an insult to the cross of Jesus if we begin to believe that unconditional love necessitates tolerance. Now, evil is not to be tolerated for it is far too destructive. And good is not merely to be tolerated because it is far too good. Why can we not tolerate evil in the life of our brother? Why can we not tolerate evil in the life of our church? Why must the church stand up against evils like abortion and the other things that we see in our society? 
It is because they are destructive to our brother. They are destructive to our neighbor. It is not loving to allow them to go and do things under the guise of love because we don't want to bring in relational awkwardness so that, we might, so that they might ultimately be destroyed by the very things that they want to do. But you know, I think there's a balance here for us to, to strike. And it's a balance that comes in the rest of the text. If we were to keep reading through verse 20, it would say things like this. Bless those who persecute you. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves for the evil that is done. Like God, is venge God will have vengeance. So here, what, what is he saying there? He's saying we must hate what is evil without becoming agents of wrath. We must hate what is evil without becoming agents of wrath. In other words, we must act upon our hatred of evil by clinging with everything we've got to that which is good. Is our brother in sin? Then we don't go to him to bring the wrath of God into his life. We go to him with the fruit of the Holy Spirit and gentleness and kindness and love and we plead with our brother, even if it's at relational cost to ourselves, to our, for our brother to come back to the gospel, for our brother to repent of his sin. Even if the church was to come to the place in which they had to discipline someone and bring them out of the fellowship, it is only not to bring the wrath of God into their life, but to call them back to the grace of God, to call them back to the good of God, to hopefully bring, bring about gospel good in the life of our brothers. If, what, if, what about our students? Our students are being hit with the barrage of worldviews that are trying to re-instruct them and recalibrate their minds to think about marriage in a certain way and homosexuality in a certain way. But you know, our, our students, if, if they begin to be confused about what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, about the nature of marriage, what they don't need is for us to berate them with lectures. What they need for us to do is to come to them in a spirit of love and in a spirit of kindness to open up the Bible and to talk to them by the testimony of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ himself and to show them why God's design is better, why God's design is best. They don't need for us to bring into their life the wrath of God. They need us to call them toward the ideal design of God. They need us to call them toward thriving in Christ and rejoicing in Christ and abiding in Christ because that is what is good for them. In other words, in our relationships with one another, as we abhor that which is evil, as we hold fast to that which is good, we are to demonstrate what Jesus did on the cross by seeking to overcome great evil with a greater good in Christ at the expense of ourselves. So the first mark that we see of genuine love is that genuine love is pure. It hates that which is evil and it loves that which is good. The second mark that we see is that genuine love is affectionate. He says in verse, uh, in verse 10, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, when he says brotherly affection right there, that is a Greek word that all of you know too. That is the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Do y'all know what the nickname of the city of Philadelphia is? Anybody? The city of brotherly love, right? The city, now, they throw snowballs at Santa Claus at the football games, so maybe they don't live it out just the way. It's a lot like the church sometimes, right? But, but that's exactly what it means. It means brotherly love, a brotherly affection. 
He uses the word, there's, there's about three, there's really three core different words for love used in the New Testament. And the one that he uses when he says love one another starts with that exact same prefix, philo. It is an affectionate love. So essentially what Paul is saying here is affectionately love one another with brotherly affection. Affectionately love one another with brotherly affection. That this is the kind of love that's found in a family. The kind of love that Paul is talking about here is the kind of love that you, you feel at Christmas time and at Thanksgiving. You know that time when you, when you come around and like the house is buzzing and everybody's telling stories and everybody's catching up. And even if it's just for a moment, you kind of forget about all of your troubles and you forget about all of your difficulties and you just, you just kind of enjoy one another and take comfort in each other and share memories with each other. It's that affectionate love that you really don't find in the other places that you go. That's the kind of love he is describing as needing to be in the church, as should be in the church. As we've talked about before, the, the, one of the most frequent metaphors used for the church in the New Testament is that of the family. And if I'm telling you the truth, this changed my life a long time ago. So about about 16, now this, is, this may seem a little cheesy to y'all, all right? But just, just humor me because this was transformative for me. So about 16 years ago, in February of 2001, I became a Christian. I, I became a Christian for the first time. I had been, the, the Spirit had been convicting me for years. I had been uh, kind of rebelling against that and pride and all of those things. But I was at a winter camp with all of our, our youth ministry. And that night, I humbled myself and I said, Jesus, it has to be you. Well, something else happened on that trip. Not only was I saved, but our youth pastor began telling us that he wanted us to stop referring to our, our uh, group as being a youth group. And that he wanted us to start referring to it as being a youth family. As people that if you were older, you'd look out for the younger ones. That if there was a, a game going on, you'd try to go and, and participate and support. If, if one of you were to go down to the altar, that another would go and put their arm around them and pray for them. And, and y'all... For a 14-year-old young man, it was transformative for me. I thought, man, that is awesome. I'm not just being saved. I get a family. And our youth pastor would tell us all the time, you've got a family. I'm here for you, and I need you to be here for me. And, and you know what? Over the last nearly 20 years, Iron City Baptist Church has become my family. Become my family. And you were there when I got married. You were there when I got saved. You were there when I was baptized. You were there when I preached my first sermon. I said everything I knew about Jesus in seven minutes and sat down. <laughs> and you were there. And you came back. And you all lied to me and told me it was good. <laughs> you were there when we had our first child and our second. You were there when I took my first ministry position and you were there when I left for my first full-time position. We would run into each other at the grocery store and you would ask me about my family and ask me about my ministry and tell me about things that you had heard that you were keeping up with me and that you cared about what happened to me. I came back. We first pastorate. We're here together. Became a family. You can ask my, my parents. You can ask my wife. You can ask my friends from high school and now. Church was always my favorite place to go. It was always my favorite place to go because people were nice to me here. 
And people were kind to me here. I wasn't the best athlete, and I wasn't the coolest kid in school, and I wasn't this, and I wasn't that, but I came to church, and people loved me here. And you know what God has done over those years? Is God has expanded my, my understanding to realize that this isn't just about Iron City Baptist Church. That, that, that not only do I have a family right here, I've got a global family. I've got brothers and sisters around the world to the ends of the earth that love me and pray for me and that I love and I pray for. That, that God has called me into a global family and I have more things in common with Africans I've never met that love Jesus with all of their hearts than neighbors in Mountain View that don't know him at all. And at the end of this month, we're going to fly to Swaziland, me and seven other men, and we're going to get off the airplane, and there's going to be this giant African going to wrap his arms around me and says, Brother, I've missed you. I've been so excited about you coming. I've been praying for you every day. God has called us to be a part of a family so that we can show affection to one another and enjoy one another. And so he says, out of that, you should outdo one another in showing honor. You should outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, you should be anxious. Anxious to celebrate your brother. That you should be anxious to lift up and to honor your sister. You should be anxious to seek opportunities to bring recognition to the good that God is doing in the family of God at the expense to yourself. Not you being recognized, but your brother being recognized, your sister being recognized, your church being recognized. You see, we aren't called to tolerate each other, church. We are called to celebrate each other. Celebrate what one another is doing in the gospel. To celebrate the transformation that God is bringing about in our lives. You know, I'd like a competition to start around here. I'd like a competition to start around here. That we would see who can most outdo the other in honoring one another. What, what, if we, what if we brought that attitude into our church? What if we brought that attitude into our Christian marriages? What if we brought that attitude into our Christian friendships? What if we have that attitude among our deacons and among our elders? What if we have that attitude? That is going to be my job to bring, to elevate my the opinion of my brother in everybody else's eyes. I want everybody to hear how good God is and what he is doing in Iron City Baptist Church and in the life of my brothers and in my sisters. You know, your children and your unbelieving spouse and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers, they will never have a higher opinion of your church than what you tell them. And if we're busy beating each other down and we're busy talking about petty criticisms and if we're busy gossiping about things that really won't matter a hill of beans on judgment day, then all of them are gonna have a low view of the gospel and a low view of the church but if we will seek not just to tolerate each other, but to celebrate each other, man, that's magnetic. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Yes, brothers and sisters, true love is affectionate. True love is affectionate. True love wants to elevate you in the mind of your... Is this not what family do, families do, by the way? If y'all go and talk to Kelly Hill, I'm sorry. But she thinks I'm some mix between Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul. And I ain't that good, y'all. I ain't that good. But you know what? That's my mama. And my mama thinks I am. And she's going to celebrate me. That's what families do, brothers and sisters. That's what families do. 
That's who we are. Let everybody else say, yeah, but they don't do and they don't do and they don't do. No, man, my brother loves Jesus. Third mark, genuine love is zealous. Genuine love is zealous. Verse 11, God's word says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Now, it's interesting the way that he says that there, right? Do not be slothful in zeal. In other words, don't be lazy in passion. Don't be lazy in your energy for God. Now, lazy and, and, and passion, lazy and zeal, those words don't belong with each other. It's like trying to have hot water and cold water in the same glass. It's like trying to have a fire and have snow simultaneously. The things just can't coexist. You can't have ice and fire at the same time. And you can't be idle and lazy and passionate at the same time. Those things don't, don't mix. You can't be zealous for God and indifferent to God simultaneously. You can't be passionate about the things of God and indifferent about the glory of God in your life. It just can't be. So Paul is looking at this church and he's saying, don't be idle in your zeal. Don't, don't, don't be lazy in your zeal. See, most of these Christians probably became Christians in the, uh, the, the I'm sorry, my computer, my thing here just freaked out on me. They probably became Christians at Pentecost. And so they're on that day when 3,000 people got saved and the Holy Spirit descends on the people of God and the fire of God is above their heads, right? But you can imagine, this is some years later and they've cooled a bit since then. They've backed down a little bit since then. I wonder how many of you are like that. On the day of your salvation, on the day of your baptism, you were ready to take down hell. On the day of your salvation, you were resolved that you would live for the glory of Christ for the rest of your life, and you had offered it to him, and you came, and you sang the songs with all of your heart, and you listened to the sermon with everything that you had, and you sought to apply it and to change it and to be molded into the image of Christ. But now, years later, you've cooled. Years later, you've backed away. Years later, the fire that was once there has now lost steam. What Paul is calling us to is he's saying, listen, don't lose collective steam. Instead, build collective zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Be fervent in the Spirit and serve the Lord together. The word fervent, fervent there, it, it paints the picture of, of a pot of water that's boiling over. Or a fire that, that has become so hot internally that it begins to, to spread and to burn those things that are around it. And the responsibility that we have as we love one another is to come together and to pool our zeal and to pool our passion and to burn so hot for God that it begins to set ablaze those brothers and sisters that are close to us. It begins to set ablaze our Sunday school classes and our worship. If nobody else is going to sing, I'm going to sing. If nobody else is going to serve, I'm going to serve. If nobody else is going to go, I'm going to go. I have decided to follow Jesus and for me, there is no turning back. Instead, what do we find too often in the church? Rather than encouraging one another, rather than setting one another ablaze, we begin to stifle one another. 
We begin to extinguish the fire of God that is in us. And we begin to tell people, yeah, that's nice for you. I used to be like that too. But now I've kind of settled down a little bit. I remember when I was young and in love with Jesus, but now I just kind of have to go through the motions a little bit. You know what? We need fewer firefighters in the church and more arsonists. We need more arsonists. We need to come to church week in and week out, not just to be fed, not just to be inwardly pleased, not just to, be, to, to enjoy things for ourselves, but with the very intention of setting our brothers and our sisters on fire for God. We need to come to church every week understanding the, the mire and the muck that our brothers and sisters have been living in and walking in every single day and that they are losing steam in their Christian faith that we might come together collectively and set one another on fire again. There is to be a collective zeal, a collective fervency, a collective passion so that together we collectively come together and serve the Lord. What about you? Do you think you're more of a firefighter or an arsonist? Are you putting fires out? Are you fanning the flame of God that is in your brother or in your sister? The fourth mark is that genuine love is faithful. Genuine love is faithful. You'll look there with me in verse 12. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Something that jumped out at me as I was studying this is, is that Paul uses this same phrase in other places. He uses this in Romans chapter 8 where he talks about the relationship between hope and then, and then uh, endurance and then prayer. And so I started realizing that this must mean that there's a, a strong connection between these three concepts. Hope, endurance, or hope, patience, and prayer. And what I began to think about is, and realize is that what all three of those things have in common is all three of those things speak to the nature of faith. They speak to the character of faith. You know what hope is? Hope is an expectant faith. Hope is an expectant faith that God really is going to do the things that he has said he's going to do. That even though I can't see it, and even though I can't know it, and even though I can't plan it, that I know God is going to do exactly as God has promised that he will do. And so I will hope in him. It is the ability to rejoice in your circumstance, uh, rejoice in God when you can't rejoice in your circumstances. It is the ability to, to look to God and to know that God is true and God is sovereign and God is good and God is powerful even when everything else that your eyes can see seems to be falling apart. That's what hope is. Hope is the light at the end of the tunnel that is Jesus Christ who will never leave you nor forsake you and will allow you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death without losing hearts. You know what patience is? Hope is an expectant faith, and patience is an enduring faith. It is not like the, the, the seed that is scattered in the shallow soil that springs up and withers away as quickly as it comes. No, it is a, it is a faith that is able to wait for the Lord, to endure for the Lord, to persevere in the Lord. It is a faith that keeps its eyes on the cross, even as all of the rug of the world is being jerked out from beneath its feet. You know, I think waiting on the timing of God may just be the most difficult thing in the Christian life. Waiting on the timing of God when you, when you want the baby, but the baby doesn't come. 
When you want the husband or the wife, but the husband or the wife doesn't come. When you want your, your financial situation to finally be stable and it just never stabilizes. When, when you want your career to advance, but your career never really advances. When you get to the end of your rope and you want Jesus to come back and Jesus hasn't come back yet. When you want your husband or your son or your daughter or your friend or your neighbor to be saved by Christ and they haven't been saved yet. That's what's hard, isn't it? That's what's hard. It's the waiting for God that is hard. But it's waiting for God that shows the essence of our faith. It is our willingness and our ability to endure in the gospel and endure in our hope in God and in wait for him that shows to him just how truly and completely we trust him. That we have given all these things over to him. David, as he was uh, being surrounded by the encampment of his, of, of his enemies, wrote these words. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What is that, brothers and sisters? That is a, a patient, enduring, persevering faith. So hope is an expectant faith. Patience is an enduring faith. And prayer is an expressed faith. How do we express our faith in God? How do we express our trust in God? It's going to him day in, day out, and praying day in and day out. Isn't that what Paul says? He doesn't say just, just pray, does he? He says be constant in prayer. Be always praying. Be praying continuously. It's the prayer like my brother Vern. As we celebrated this morning the baptism of his oldest son. I can vouch and I can tell you that this man prayed day in and day out for the salvation of his son. And I can tell you there were low moments and there were moments in which it would have been easy to give up and there were moments in which it appeared as though God had forsaken. There was moments in which the circumstances seemed to say anything other than that would happen. And yet what has happened, brothers and sisters? What has happened this morning? God has been proven faithful. God has been proven true. The expression of our faith in God is not to go to him once, but to go to him day in and day out in the difficulties in life, in the frustrations of life, in the annoyances of life. And when you want to give up and to say, no, but I will hope in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord. Oh God, I come to you again this day, not having heard a word from you, asking you to intervene for me. Now, how does that speak to loving one another? What does that have to say with love? You see, that's who we are. We are hoping, enduring, praying people of faith. And this is why you need your church. Because a day is coming in which you're going to find hope to be impossible. And you're going to need your brothers and sisters to hope for you. And the day is coming in which waiting and enduring will seem impossible. And you're going to need your brothers and sisters to take you by the arm and to persevere for you and with you and for your good. There's going to be a day coming 
in which your prayers will seem have been so ignored that you won't have the words to utter anymore. There will be such sorrow and pain and difficulty in your life that you won't even really know how to articulate those things to God. And you will need your church to pray with you and to pray for you and to give utterance to those things that are in your soul. You see, you can't hope and endure and pray alone in this life. You need one another. This is a collective faith, a collective hoping, a collective enduring, a collective praying. The final mark that we see is that genuine love is sacrificial. Genuine love is sacrificial. Read with me verse 13, brothers and sisters. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The, 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 the word there is koinonia, all right? Now that is the word for fellowship in the New Testament. That's the word that talks about the church hanging out with each other and enjoying each other and spending time with each other. And did you know that 12 times in the New Testament when this word is used, it is used for the, to, to speak to the need to give material resources to each other for their good? 12 different times. That in other words, a significant part of our fellowship with one another is sacrificing for one another for the good of each other. It is to bring together those things that we have and those things that the Lord has gifted to us so that we might now be a gift for our brother or our sister, so that we might help our brothers and sisters sustain and hope and endure and persevere when no other way seems possible. He talks here about hospitality. Hospitality was a significant need in the first century. You couldn't just go out to the Hampton Inn and, and you know, go on Expedia.com and, and, and book a spot and go hang out, all right? If you were going to go on, on mission and everybody in the early church was expected to go, and if they were physically able to go on mission, you had to find a place to crash. If you were going to go to Corinth, you needed a place to stay in Corinth. If you were going to go to Colossae, you needed a place in Colossae to go and crash, and so it became natural, one of the marks of the early church, that you, they would share homes with each other and share times with each other and share meals with each other. That if you come to another city, you just know you already have a house there. You come to another country, just know you've already got a house there because God has put brothers there and God has put sisters there. And so we're going to collectively give to you out of what the Lord has given to us. Very often this even came at the cost of potentially losing their home or losing their lives. As persecution spread across the Roman Empire, it became against the law illegal to harbor a Christian in your own home. And so you would have to do it under the guise of night, hoping that the government wouldn't, wouldn't find out. And so you were rolling out the red carpet, bringing in your brother for their good at potential great cost to yourself. Love always requires sacrifice, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? Love always requires sacrifice. Look at your kids. Look at your marriage. Look at anything in your life that you know about love. And every single time, you'll melt it down to the word sacrifice. If you don't love your church in a way that leads to sacrifice, the sacrifice of your time, the sacrifice of your money sometimes, the sacrifice of your energy, the sacrifice of your convenience, the sacrifice of your comfort, 
then the question has to be begged, do you love them? Do you love one another? Because love always requires sacrifice. Sometimes it means that I go on a lesser vacation because of the good of my brother. Sometimes it means that I do without the thing that I want for a little bit longer because I need to, I need to contribute to the need of my brother. You see, when, we, when, when a family of Iron City Baptist Church adopts, we're adopting together. It's all of us adopting that baby. You know, right now we, we have the Johnstones, and man, the Lord, they have testified to how many of you have helped contribute to that need. And you know, maybe not every single one of us will adopt an orphan from Haiti, but they are, and they're one of us, and that baby is gonna be one of us. And so we have a collective responsibility to come together and to support them to that end. When, when, uh, when, when, we, when, we have, when we're sending a, a member of our church family to, uh, to the nations on mission, it's not just that person that's going on mission. It's not just that person that's going to share the gospel. It's us collectively. It's Iron City Bible Church. It's this church family. And we have a collective responsibility to come together to make sure that our missionaries are able to go to the ends of the earth. When one of us has a need, when one of us can't make ends meet, when one of us needs provision, we have a responsibility to each other to inconvenience ourselves and to sacrifice what the Lord has given us for the good of our brothers. We should be known in our community for our hospitality and our generosity to each other. See, brothers and sisters, this morning, the Lord is calling us to a pure love. He's calling us to an unmasked love. He's calling us to a love that doesn't look like the loves that you'll find in the world, not looking like the polluted definitions that most of us carry, but to love that is true, unmasked, without hypocrisy. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer.